Uh, my name's Elizabeth Maxwell. I'm going to be doing the Bible reading today. And if you can turn up, oh, I serve on the uh, care team and the welcome team, and also the property cleaning roster from time to time. Uh, if you can turn with me to Luke chapter 19, verses 11 to 27. If you haven't got a Bible, please feel free to help yourself for one up the back, and that's our gift to you. So that's Luke 19, verses 11 to 27. And it's headed the parable of the 10 miners. While we were still listening to this, we went on to tell him a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. And then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, sir, your mina has earned 10 more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of 10 cities. The second came and said, sir, your mina has earned five more. And his master answered, you take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. The master, his master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? And then he said to those standing by, Take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. And he replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Thanks, Elizabeth. That was wonderfully read. Um, good morning, church. As Corey mentioned earlier, we are finishing our series today. Uh, for the last few weeks, we have been looking at uh, some passages just before Jesus enters Jerusalem. So that, that's why after that story, you'll see in verse uh, 28 that Jesus actually starts to enter uh, Jerusalem. And we've been doing this series because we wanted to show you how we get to enter into the kingdom of God. Um, and we'll, we'll, pick it up, we'll pick up this story one day again, so we're gonna end the series uh, this week. And next week, we're gonna be looking at um, a, um, a, a sermon about mission. And as, as we said, that we're gonna have a, a guest speaker, the principal of SMBC. And after that, we're gonna be doing a small series, a three-week series on prayer. Um, but uh, yeah, but that's, that's for the next few weeks. But before I start today, allow me to begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you again that we are here 
And Lord, for some of us that comes here with a heavy heart, uh, Lord, we pray that you will just ease our burden. Remind us that you have taken our great burden of our sin and death. So Lord, we pray that you will remind us of the wonderful work that the Lord Jesus has done for our sake. Amen. You know, for the last few weeks, my wife and I have been house hunting. Uh, it means that during the week, at night, we check out houses online, uh, things that are posted online. Then on Saturdays, we look at them, and we go there, we look at them, and often, uh, we, we often really visit the houses that we can't afford. Um, and often, that's, that's quite frustrating. But the other frustrating thing is that, you know, the photos are often far from reality. The photos online, they make the house look clean, nice, spacious, and, and homey. But once you're there, in person, it's quite different. Uh, and we all know that photos can often give false expectations. Photos can be deceiving. The photos of a Big Mac from the menu that you're ordering is far from the Big Mac that you will be receiving. The photo of the person that you will meet online in online dating might be far different from the person that you will meet in person. A photo of your holiday destination might be nowhere near your actual experience. Photos can be deceiving. Photos doesn't always match reality. It can give false expectations. And as I've said, for the last few weeks, we've been seeing people's, the Jews' false expectation of what the Messiah would look like. And they have this false expectation of what the kingdom of God will be like. And so the Jews had this mental picture of this savior that they have, of what he's going to be like, what he will be doing, and the kind of kingdom that he will be bringing. But then they see Jesus, and he's nowhere near what they've expected. And he's preaching about this kingdom that's nowhere near that they're, the, the kingdom that they're anticipating. And so look at verse 11. It says that while they were still listening to, to Zacchaeus when Jesus said that uh, salvation is here, he went to tell them a story, a parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. That it's something big is about to happen. That's what they were expecting. But maybe that they're expecting Jesus to overthrow the Roman government. Maybe they were, they were waiting for Jesus to bring fire from heaven like the prophet Elijah. But instead, the very opposite happened. That as Jesus enters Jerusalem, we see him to put on trial, found guilty. He was tortured, crucified, and killed in Jerusalem. Not the Messiah that they're expecting. But remember, he tells his disciples earlier, and we saw this a few weeks ago, that this is all part of the plan. He says that you don't understand why, but you know, I am going to die, I'm gonna get tortured, I'm gonna get killed. But see, they all had this false expectation of what the Messiah and the kingdom of God is gonna be like. And this is why a lot of the teachings of Jesus is actually correcting people's false expectations. And I think this is still the case today, that a lot of people, even so-called Christians, have false expectation of what Jesus is about, what Christianity is about, or what the kingdom of God is about. That maybe you became a Christian with the wrong understanding of Jesus and what his kingdom is like. And so today's parable is about correcting, I believe, three common misunderstandings of, of what the kingdom of God is like. And it answers 
three important questions that we are all asking. And the three things that I wanted to show you are these. The questions that, the, the questions that we normally ask are, when will it end? The timing of the kingdom. How do we wait? So what do we do for now? And then what can we expect when Jesus returns? When will it end? How do we wait? And what can we expect? All right, let's start. When will it end? And so when it comes to the kingdom of God, when it comes to the end times, a lot of Christians get so fired up with this big question. When is it going to end? When is Jesus going, going to come back? And I think just this week, I've heard it a couple of times from different people, um, that someone's saying that the end is near, that because of all the signs that's happening today, the pandemic, the floods, the war in Ukraine, and someone even said that Donald Trump being, becoming president are all signs that the end is here, it's near. But see, the Bible is clear, clear that no one knows when it is. Only God knows. And even Jesus warns his disciples not to be deceived, believing that the end is right now. Look at Matthew 24. Uh, in, the, in the screen it says that, Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known on what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. See, the main command is not, go figure out when Jesus will return. The main command is, be ready. To always be ready. And even our parable is about being ready and being accountable when Jesus returns. Look with me in verse 12 in our passage. A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. I think it's quite clear that Jesus is referring to himself, that he's the noble man. Remember, the blind man calls him the son of David a few weeks ago. And after his death and resurrection, we know already that he will leave his disciples and he will ascend back to his father to claim his throne. We see that in Acts. But then he promises that he will return and reestablish the kingdom here on earth. Right? So that's the reference here of his ascension going up to the Father, and he will return uh, as the new king. The parable doesn't tell us when the nobleman will return, but it only says that he will return as king one day. But here's what we can observe from the parable while this nobleman is gone. Firstly, the nobleman is away long enough for the servants to make an investment, right? The nobleman was gone long enough for his servants to demonstrate their faithfulness to their master. The parable is not teaching us about the timing. It is teaching us the waiting time will be quite revealing about us. The waiting period will be very revealing, right? It will be a revealing time regarding our faith. It means that the real spiritual condition of our hearts are tested through time. Time will tell if you and I are truly committed and faithful followers of Jesus. Because it's often easy to live out our Christian lives at the very start. 
at the start, most of us will be so passionate about our faith. We will be so courageous to share our faith. We'll be so excited to celebrate our faith. But the longer we've been a Christian, the harder it is. The harder it is to be committed, isn't it? Once all the novelty wears out, we often become complacent, right? We become quite lazy. Then laziness often turns to indifferent, that we start to care. We start to care less. And then we even become grumpy and often antagonistic towards the church. That at the start of our Christian life, we can go to church regularly. We're happy to serve in so many ministries. We're willing to live sacrificially. But as time goes by, we become impatient. We get bored. And then we slowly distance ourselves. And we just want to be left alone. And soon enough, we even lose our faith. Remember the parable of the soil? A farmer once, sorry, plants some seed for, um, for the first few weeks. Everything seems fine. All seems to be growing well. And Jesus says some seeds fell on the rocky ground, which means that after a few weeks, they can't sustain themselves because, because they can't take root deep in the ground. And some seed fell on a place where weeds are growing. And so they grow, but the weeds start to choke um, the plants. And Jesus said that when the problems and the attractions of this world comes up, it slowly uh, chokes our, our faith, that the world is slowly choking our faith. And see, the, les the lesson is that as we wait, right, it, it, it's really telling what kind of faith we have. That the kingdom of God, it's not about intensity. It's not about how much you can do and produce in such a short time, but it's about longevity. It's, a, it's, it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's, it's those who can stay in the race that will receive the prize in the end. It's about finishing the race to being consistent and persistent. And here's the other false expectation with so many Christians. Uh, that we often think that Christianity will be the instant solution to our personal problem. That in a world of instant result, we want instant gratification. You buy something online that you can even choose the option of, of receiving it today, that night. Right? And many of us think that saying yes to Jesus means that he comes running to solve our problems right there and then. But see, the promise of Christianity is not health, wealth, and prosperity. Jesus is saying, I offer you, firstly, forgiveness of sins, salvation from sin and death, and eternal life with God. That Jesus doesn't promise a comfortable life. In fact, it's the very opposite. Jesus said that if you are my follower, you will face many troubles. You have, you'll have your close families and friends disowning you. You will have society against you. You'll have Satan tempting you. And that will be the case until the very end of your life. That's what he says. And notice in the parable that there's another group of people in verse 14, right? They're not the servants. They're, they're other citizens in the area. But they hate the nobleman, and they're trying to stop him from becoming king. So they're sending other people to oppose the crowning of the king. Which means that these people, the, these opposition, uh, opposition will, will be against the servants too. That while the noble man is gone, a group of people will be there making life harder for the servants of the king. 
And today, we know that a lot of people, our society, our government, spiritual powers that we can't see, they all oppose Jesus and they don't want him as king. And so we know that the, the judgment awaits them. But for now, at this very moment, they're all against the followers of Jesus. The Christian life is a life of daily struggle to remain faithful to the, ver to the very end. Eugene Peterson, the author of the Message Bible, he says this, Christianity is a long obedience in the same direction. Right? It's a long obedience in the same direction. It's a marathon of faithful obedience. It's about waking up every morning, making the, de the decision to keep trusting and obeying the master. That's our first point. Our first point is we don't know when Jesus, our king, will return. What we do know is that right now our faith is being tested. That time will reveal if we are faithful followers of Jesus. So the question is not when, but will you be faithful with the time given to you while you wait for the return of the king? Now, secondly, our second point, how do we wait? What is expected of us? Waiting doesn't mean just doing nothing. Look at verse 13, that the nobleman commanded his servants to put this money to work until I come back. So he gave them money and he asked them to do whatever they can to grow it. They, they have the freedom really to do whatever. And see, this is the second false expectation. The first one is that people were expecting the kingdom of God to arrive immediately, there and then. But then they were also expecting to do nothing and just sit back. But Jesus' parable is teaching us that while he is gone, we are called and we're expected to make some sort of investment that demonstrates our faithfulness. Now, I'll just give a warning here that when we're reading a parable, we can't pull off too many meanings uh, out of it because normally a parable will just have one simple lesson and we can't therefore read too much into it. Therefore, I don't want to make the quick assumption that the, the mina or, or the money that's being um, talked about here alludes to some sort of uh, talents and resources that we have. It doesn't directly say that, okay? But I think, I believe it is safe to say that the whole point of the parable is that the followers of the king should be faithful to the king by doing the work that brings honor and glory to the king. Okay? That the parable is about the followers of the king should be faithful to the king by doing the work that brings honor and glory to the king. Therefore, the point is that the king entrusted them with money to invest and to grow it, and their faithfulness is shown by their obedience. Again, we can assume that the application for us today is that God has given us something. It has to be something that he has given us. Maybe it's the gospel. Maybe it's the resources that we have. Maybe it is that. Maybe it's the unique experiences that we have. That he, but the point is he doesn't want us to just sit back and relax and enjoy. He wants us to invest. That if you are a follower of Jesus, every aspect of your life is a gift given to you for the purpose of investment. That where you live, where you work, your weekends, your abilities, that your money, your health, your family, your relationships, even your suffering could be that all is this given so that we can all use it to honor and glory our King. 
Because the other point is that one day, like the servants, we will give an account of what we've done when the king returns. That one day we will all face verse 15, where it says that King Jesus sends for us in order to find out what we have gained with what we have given. See? Now, after the service, don't ask me how the reward process works in heaven, because I don't know. Uh, the Bible doesn't really speak too much about it. But there are a number of passages that speaks of being accountable with the things that we have for God. Verses like 2 Corinthians 5.10. It says that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And this is speaking to Christians, to the church. So that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, while we're still alive. Look at the end, Revelations 22. Behold, Jesus says, look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me. And I will give to each person according to what they have done. Again, the message is clear. I believe that what you do here on earth will be an investment for your eternal life in heaven. So the question again is not, the question is not, are you busy with your life? In a, in a, in a capitalist society, we are all busy. We're, we're all making some sort of investment. If you ask people, uh, how's their week? Often we say, we're, you know, I've been busy because we're all investing in something. But the right question we should be asking is, are we busy with the right thing? Are we working hard for the right goal? Are we doing what we're supposed to be doing for our God? Uh, 20 years ago, John Piper, a, a Baptist minister in the U.S., he preached to thousands of, of college students during a conference, and he spoke about a wasted life. All right? he, spoke, he spoke about a wasted life, and he said this, um, and to quote from his, from his sermon in this um, conference, I'll, t I'll tell you what a tragedy is. I'll read to you from Reader's Digest what a tragedy is. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trolla, uh, playing softball and collecting shells. And John Piper continues to say, that's a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace the tragic dream. With all my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream. The American dream, a nice house, a nice car, a nice job, a nice family, a nice retirement, collecting shells at the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account of what you did. Here it is, Lord, my shell collection. I've got a nice swing and look at my boat. At the end of our life, the Bible says that we will have to give an account of what we have done for Christ. And it's been clear from the early stories that you don't get to heaven by good works. It is all by the grace of our Lord Jesus. But it is also a false understanding that you can get to heaven without the evidence of your good works. And this is why the previous story of Zacchaeus, it tells us that Zacchaeus clearly was saved by grace, that he didn't earn it. But out of that salvation, we saw that the motivation to invest his life for others. That Zacchaeus used to be known as, as a wealthy, greedy, and deceptive man. 
But after encountering Jesus, he is known for his generosity, for giving half of what he owns, and even repaying four times anyone that he's, he's deceived, he's cheated. That's a transformed life. Salvation is not earned through good works, but good works is the evidence that we truly have the right understanding of the salvation that we have received in the Lord. And if, therefore, if there's no changes or transformation in your life, then it might be wise to investigate if we have truly understood the cost of being a follower of Jesus. That we are tested during this time right now, that as we wait for the return of our master, and the test is to see if we will remain faithful in carrying out the responsibility in serving him and not wasting our life serving ourselves. So let's look what happens when we remain faithful in the gospel. Her third point, what can we expect? The judgment of the king. What I find really interesting uh, in the parable and shocking is the extreme reaction of the king. And just a couple of things. Firstly, notice the reward given to the faithful servants. Look how excessive the reward is. That the man who managed to turn one mina into ten ended up ruling, ruling ten cities. That he invested wisely in a small amount of money and he was given the task of managing ten cities. Right? The same same thing with a person with five mina, he was given five cities to rule. And I think the concept here is very simple, that the investment shown, the investment shows that, that um, they are committed, they are faithful, and they are responsible. And their reward for the newly, uh, for their, uh, their reward for them is that um, for the newly appointed king is to help rule the kingdom. Again, I don't want to speculate too much in a parable, but it is possible that the parable is telling us that when our king returns, part of the reward process is seeing how committed and faithful and responsible we are here on earth with what we have, maybe with the gospel. And so we are rewarded with the privilege of being responsible for God's new kingdom one day. Because there's a number of passages in the Bible that speaks about when the king returns, his people, it says, that will rule over nations and kingdoms as well. Again, I don't know how it works. I'm just suggesting. But the point is, to be safe, the rewards of the kingdom are completely out of proportion to the work that we do here now. That whatever rewards God, God may have for us when Jesus returns, it will be infinitely beyond our imagination and our worth. And that's the hope that we have. But here's the, the second shocking reaction from the king. Look at the king's reaction to the servant that did, that did not have any returns. When I first read the passage, it seems quite unfair how the servant was being treated because he didn't, when you think about it, he didn't lose it. He didn't spend the money for himself. He simply hid it and kept it safe, and he even gave it back. And I'm thinking, that's not too bad. And yet the king calls him wicked. What is so wrong with, with keeping it safe? But then notice how the third servant responds. He said that his excuse is, I was afraid of you because you are a, a hard man. You take what you did not put in, and you reap what you did not sow. Look who is, who, who is blaming there. 
right? He's blaming the master. He's saying, like, because you're so harsh, that you are so unfair, all you do is take. He's saying, it's not my fault, it's your fault for being so mean and so strict. I was so afraid. That's why I didn't do anything. Now, we know that is not true because we just saw his generosity towards the other servants. Like, we, we saw how he, how he excessively rewards them. So the servant is really a lying accuser towards his master. But see, the master, he uses the same, the same reasoning against him. He's saying, well, if I'm so harsh and unfair, then why didn't you at least put the money in the bank so that there's an interest when I get it back? The master is saying, you did not do anything at all. That's the problem. Because remember, the master was gone for quite a while. So the whole time the servant had one job. And he did not even do the very bare minimum of at least putting it in a bank. So we don't know what he was doing the whole time the master was gone. He was not doing anything. And perhaps that's why he was called wicked. And so I think the parable is telling us that as followers of Jesus, as servants of the king, that there is nothing worse than not to obey the very one command and purpose, the, the purpose that we are given, which is to make disciples, to make much of what we have been given. And so it's a huge warning for us. And it might be a false expectation in our part that, we, that when we face God, we think that everything will be okay, even though we did not do anything. And so at the end of our lives, he will ask us, what have you done with what I have given? And we might say, look, Lord, I, the gospel that you gave me, I kept it to myself. I didn't lose my faith. I kept it hidden. No one knew I was a, a Christian. All the resources and talents and opportunities you gave me, I kept it safe. And I pray that you won't be hearing, you wicked servant. Uh, C.T. Studd, a, a British missionary to China, he was a very, a very rich and, and prominent man. He came from a very rich family, but he gave it all up. He gave his money away, packed his bags, went to China, went to the unrich part of the world, and towards the end of his life, he wrote this uh, poem. And let me read the last stanza. He says, only one life, and it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, now let me say, Thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, it was worth it all. Only one life, and we know it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Church, I pray that that will be our prayer to say that it was all worth it for him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for our Lord Jesus, for sending him, for giving us salvation, for giving us life, that our death was put on him so that we can receive his, his righteousness. But Lord, we pray that we will not put that to waste, keeping it to ourselves, but help us to spread this wonderful good news so that other people would know the wonderful and Savior that we have, so that they too will have eternal life. This we pray in his name. Amen.